For our scripture reading today, we have two of our chorus members to share the word of God with you. This is Jericho Walker, who's been in the chorus for, I think, about a year now, and Trish Kreider, who's going to share the word. The hill of war of God. From John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on page 864 in the Pew Bible. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The the word of God, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. These are among the most famous and most highly shared words in the entire Bible. Many of us learned it as kids, we know it by heart, and so it should not be a surprise. It ought to be an obvious choice to select this verse among our new worship series where we take a new look at old favorites. But little did our worship team know when we planned this worship series several months ago just how timely and just how necessary these words would really be for us today. This was one of those weeks when most of what I had prepared to preach and the content of my completed sermon manuscript last Thursday was completely upended by the events of this last weekend, causing a complete rewrite of this sermon yesterday. In Charlottesville, Virginia, thousands of white nationalists gathered for a rally protesting the removal of a memorial statue of a Confederate general. They rallied under the banner, Unite the Right, and for many of us, it was the largest public gathering of white supremacists that any of us can remember in a long, long time. The reported rhetoric from the attendees at the rally was shocking, it was harsh, it was anti-Semitic, it was hateful of people of color members of the LGBTQ community, and many other people groups. It's the kind of event that ought to be jarring and unsettling for a congregation like ours, whose core values include that we are warm-hearted, which means open to a diversity of people, and open-minded, which means open to a diversity of perspectives. And it is clear to us as a church this morning that we reject and we condemn racism and bigotry in any form, fulfilling the baptismal vow that we remembered this morning, that that we resist evil 
and injustice in whatever forms they present themselves. That is our first and primary response to this rally. It's also incumbent upon us to remember our first two core values, that because we are both Christ-centered and biblically rooted, the place for us to begin thinking about the troubling events in Charlottesville is to anchor ourselves in the story of Jesus. And it is here in John 3.16, of all places, in the very Scripture text that we had planned to preach on months ago without a clue of what would be happening this weekend, that we find a timely word of diagnosis and a compelling word of challenge for each of us today and a powerful word of hope. It's good to remember that before we get to John 3.16, before we get to John chapter 3, We have to go through John chapter 2, right there at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, right there at the start of the Gospel of John. And it is here in John chapter 2, right after Jesus performs His very first miracle, the turning of water into wine, that we get the surprising placement of a story that we don't usually expect until much later in the life of Jesus. The back half of John 2, it's the story of Jesus entering the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers. It's surprising to see it here in John because in the other Gospels, it comes much later. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple doesn't happen until after Palm Sunday, after Jesus has entered Jerusalem and during the week in which He will meet the cross and die of the crucifixion. The other gospel writers see the cleansing of the temple as kind of the last straw that drives the cultural establishment to seek his execution, but not in John. In John's gospel, Jesus does it right away, right at the opening of the curtain, right when Jesus debuts His ministry and unveils His vision for the kingdom of God for the entire world to see, right there at the beginning. It is based on this story that Jesus would then preach and teach and heal and conduct His entire ministry on the basis of what he does in the temple in John chapter 2. Everything else he would do in his ministry from that point on would be framed in the context of the temple cleansing, this bold, this public, this unmistakable disruption of conventional order. So, we're left to ask the question, in light of this white supremacist gathering this weekend, what is John saying to us today by placing the story of the temple cleansing so early in his gospel? So much of the rhetoric that's coming out of these rallies has the look and feel of people whose tables have been overturned by a whirlwind of cultural forces over recent years. They look around them, and they see that society is rightfully becoming more warm-hearted and open-minded to the plight of immigrants, to discrimination against gays and lesbians, 
to equality for women and minorities. The people at these rallies are saying that their whole world, their their whole access to power, all of their cultural attachments have been flipped upside down, and now they're just left to gather up all of their shattered wares and their scattered coins, and they react with anger. That's what we've been seeing this weekend, anger to the point of rallying in the streets and protesting at memorial statues. And they're shouting and they're saying to the cameras, we can't take it anymore. We want our country back. We want the power back. But John's gospel would say that that reaction is entirely missing the point of why Jesus did what he did in the temple. John would have us believe that the overturning of the tables in the temple was not an act of disorder to the degree that the other Gospels would have you believe, as much as it was a sign of liberation for those money changers, as an act of freedom for that establishment. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus was disrupting the cultural and religious status quo, not out of spite, but out of love for them. Freeing the money changers of a, of a limited and narrow worldview so that they could begin to see just how big and how bold and how expansive and how inclusive God's love and God's kingdom could be if they could only see it themselves. On my summer reading list has been a marvelous book called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Toward the end of the book, Rabbi Sachs reminds the reader of the dangers of fusing religious conviction with cultural power. But he offers a a hopeful prescription. He says, when religion loses its political power, and is stripped of all of its attachments to prestige and influence, that is when religion can gain its influence. This is what he writes. He says, religion acquires influence when it relinquishes power. It is then that it takes place not among the rulers, but among the ruled not in the palaces of power, but in the real lives of ordinary women who become extraordinary when brushed with the wings of eternity. It becomes the voice of the voiceless, the conscience of the community, the perennial reminder that there are moral limits of power and that the task of the state is to serve the people, not the people, the state. And I I love this last sentence that concludes this quote, when religion divests itself of power, it is freed from the burden of rearranging the deck chairs on the ship of state and returns to its real task, changing lives. That is why Jesus overturned the temple tables. That's why he disrupted the cultural establishment. And that is why it is important enough to John to include that story at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Because in that moment, Jesus is liberating religion from cultural attachment.
liberating religion from power. And so from that point on in the rest of the gospel, every single encounter that Jesus would have with people would be framed by having either one of or two reactions to Jesus. Either people would see the overturning of culture as a threat, which would lead them down the way of loveless power, which would lead them to anger, which would lead them to marching through the streets of Charlottesville and shouting at the news cameras, or whether they would see the upending of culture as an act of liberation, which would lead them to discover new life. And that is where Nicodemus comes in. It is in this conversation in John chapter 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus, between the sage and the seeker, that we can find hope and the substance of our prayers in the wake of the Charlottesville rallies. Barely a few verses after Jesus has just turned the tables and upset the cultural norms of Judea, Nicodemus comes to him in secret, comes to him in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. Why? Because because John would remind us that Nicodemus is not only a member of that cultural establishment, he is one of its most prominent figures, one of its highest-ranking officials, one of its best-known public figures. And he has just seen his whole world and the world of all of his establishment colleagues turned upside down. And Nicodemus is unsure about all that. In the conversation with Jesus, he comes across as unsure and a bit lost. He knows that, that the establishment has just been overturned, and he knows that it would be tempting deep without his soul to react in anger and to rally with thousands of his upset friends in Charlottesville and to try to take his power back. Except somehow... <laughs> He's been able to catch a glimpse of God's grace in his life. And it won't let him go. And there was something deep within Nicodemus that somehow saw that upending of culture not as injustice, but as liberation and as freedom for him and his friends. And so he came to Jesus under the cover of night, so as not to be seen by his colleagues. And it is there, in that context, under the cover of night, in one of the most powerful, personal, and private conversations in the entire Bible, that Jesus said the words of John 3.16 to him, which Jesus showed Nicodemus just how big, just how bold, just how inclusive, and just how transformative God's love was. And he said to Nicodemus in John 3.16, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. Not just you, Nicodemus. Not just people who look like you. Not just people who 
look different from you. God so loved the whole world, the establishment and the outcast, the people with power and the powerless, the people with a voice and those who are voiceless, the men and the women, the native and the immigrant, the straight person and the gay person, the religious and the irreligious. God loves them all. The white person and the non-white person. The people who feel like they have the power and those who feel like they are on the fringe. And Nicodemus, the sooner you can strip away all of those cultural attachments and addictions to cultural power. In other words, Nicodemus, the sooner you can believe. And the sooner you can have life, real life, a liberated and free life. You might even say, Nicodemus, the sooner you can believe, you can have eternal life. Now, how's that for a new and necessary take on an old favorite? It is hard to watch the footage of what has been happening in Charlottesville. So many of us are repulsed by it and disgusted by it and hurt by it. And those are all valid reactions. But John's gospel would invite us to add one more reaction to the mix in the form of a question. What if we prayed for more Nicodemuses among them? Might it be possible that God could stir in the hearts of even the most prominent and highly public figures among them? Might God even lead some of them to see warm-heartedness and open-mindedness not as a threat, but as a glimmer of liberation? The same God who did it in Nicodemus, might God do it again? That's what I'll try to pray for. And that's what I'll try to watch for in the future. And by the way, might there be a word of challenge for each of us here today as well? I mean, isn't it possible that we are even just a bit like Nicodemus ourselves? Ask yourself the question, what cultural associations do we have with prestige and power and cultural attachment that need to be stripped away, as painful and as unsettling as that might be, before we can see the full shimmer of God's grace in us and through us. By the way, do you want to know what happens to Nicodemus in the rest of the gospel? John is the only one to tell us what happened to Nicodemus. None of the other gospels seem interested. We meet Nicodemus a second time in John chapter 7. This time he's back sitting with his fellow Pharisees, huddled with the rest of the cultural establishment. And boy, those Pharisees are still stewing. They're still angry and hate-filled, and they're plotting their next rally, stewing in their venom. But Nicodemus is now a transformed man since that conversation with Jesus. 
No longer does he care about his reputation. He no longer has to hide in the dark because now he has seen the light of God's love and his inner stirrings and all of his deepest questions have all been subsided. And while all those other Pharisees are plotting their next angry act, in John 7, Nicodemus steps forward and comes to Jesus' defense. You want to know the last time we see Nicodemus? John chapter 19. And it's there that we see the most vivid evidence of all of just how transformed Nicodemus has become. After Jesus died and his body was lifted off the cross, it is Nicodemus who steps forward to care for the body of our Lord. He secured permission to lay his body in a brand new tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And at the end of his life, Nicodemus didn't care anymore about his prestige and his cultural power and his wealth and his influence. All he cared about was love. Love for God and love for each other. God did it in Nicodemus. And God can do it again. God can do it again. God transformed Nicodemus away from a heart that was filled with fear and hatred and turned his heart towards God's love, and God can do it again in the wake of what has happened in Charlottesville. God can do it in them. God can do it in us. God can do it in all of us so that all of us can receive a timely reminder of just how big and just how expansive and just how inclusive God's love and God's kingdom really is. Let us pray. Oh God, once again we are seeing evidence of humanity at its worst at its most hate-filled and vitriolic. If there is hope in any of this, it is that you have seen it before, that even amid the darkness of the human condition, your grace is still greater, and it can move and transform even the hardest Nicodemuses among us, even that which exists within us, Do it again. Do it again. Just like you did before. In countless lives. In countless acts of evil and hate. We rest and abide in the sure confidence that your love is greater. And that your love will win. It is a love for the entire world that was exemplified in the giving of yourself in Jesus and that calls us to believe so that we can have the life that you intend for all people. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let all God's people say, Amen. Amen.